I always go back to training. Training for us in practice and sports is really where you separate yourselves as a business, as a team, the work you put in. And it's not practice until you get it right. It's practice until you can't get it wrong. And I think we've all been there. Anybody, anytime that you've been in a team sport or a solo sport, your coach saying, hey, we're going to do this drill for the thousandth time this week. And everybody's rolling their eyes and they're like, oh, this is, this is, uh, this sucks and all this stuff. And then you get into the game and you realize like mentally you cannot get it wrong. Um, and so that's where for us, we overtrain in our restaurants. Uh, we over prepare. Um, we make sure that somebody coming on gets their full training. They don't start a shift by themselves until they have passed their training course. Same day, no change in the pace of the race. We'll be living from spinning on your breaking Welcome to Magic in the Middle, where we will unlock the potential for a sustained growth strategy by exploring the sports-to-business analogy. I have interviewed CEOs and professional sports coaches to identify the magic in the middle between sports and business leadership. On this journey, we will dive deep into 10 topics that strike a chord for both coaches and business leaders. I will incorporate my own story as co-founder and CEO of BrandLive, which quickly rose to one of America's fastest-growing companies. It was an amazing experience, but it sure wasn't without bumps in the road. Today, I sit down with Barrick Blackwell, franchise executive and collegiate national champ. The restaurant industry, arguably, has been forced to deal with the most COVID-19 disruptions. But this experienced executive is as cool as a scoop of ice cream. Drawing from his time growing cold stone ice cream in Japan and scoring a golden goal in one of his two collegiate soccer championships, Barrick Blackwell has a lot to share about the current economy and his journey as president of growing restaurant chain, The Daily Jam. We discuss the use of training as a differentiator and a competitive advantage. We also discuss how it feels to win a sports championship and what you can do to create that same feeling in your company. Well, why don't we start with just a little bit of background. I'd love to hear kind of the Cliff Notes length version of your sports experience and your business experience. Yeah, definitely. So um, sports experience, you know, I grew up playing uh, soccer and baseball. Um, ended up choosing soccer and decided to go to Fort Lewis College in Durango, Colorado. Fort Lewis College has always been known as a powerhouse D2 <clears throat> soccer school and kind of like the Appalachian state, I guess, of soccer. Um, and so chose to go there, small town, small school, um, but ended up being the right decision. I just fell in love with everything about it. Durango is a ski town, small college ski town. We were kind of the team there. So we had a football team, but didn't really do much with that program. We were constantly uh, the team to go watch. The whole city came out and supported us and, and knew us. Um, so just a really cool experience to be able to uh, go through that. And then we had a, a lot of success when I was there. So the stars aligned. We had the right people, the right coaches, and ended up winning two national championships, NCAA national championships when I was there, uh, my sophomore year and my senior year. Just going through that whole process was awesome, and I still carry a lot of what you know we learned as a team 
going through the ups and downs into the business world now. Graduated and thought about trying to to pursue soccer, but my body was done. <clears throat> we had some guys on our team that that ended up uh, you know going out and playing around the world uh, for some professional programs, um, which was cool to see and follow. Some still are playing, but um, yeah, I decided to uh, to just jump into business. So my family has been uh, primarily focused in the QSR franchise space. So quick service restaurant franchise space um, as the franchisor, meaning that, um, you know, they basically control the support behind certain restaurant brands. So, so I decided to work for a company called Kahala Brands, which owned Coldstone Creamery, Blimpy Subs, some other regional concepts, about 13 brands, and was kind of just honestly a little bit of an intern role. And I bounced around. I knew what I was interested in, which was international business and the finance side of things. So kind of just lollygagged around the hallways and, and made sure that I could get as much... Uh, exposure as I could. Um, that time there, which was a couple of years, ended up sending me over to Japan. Um, so I lived in Tokyo for two years working for Coldstone Creamery and Krispy Kreme Donuts, um, which <laughs> there could be worse brands, I guess, to work for from the taste profile standpoint. Didn't gain too much weight, but Spent a couple of years doing some development work for them. And, and the company I was working for also had some consulting segments of their business that I um, helped out with. Came back to the U.S. And I, after doing a little bit of consulting work myself, ended up joining the company I'm with now, which is Daily Jam. So it's a breakfast, brunch, and lunch restaurant concept. We have two locations here in Arizona. And we just about a year ago took on private equity investment to grow the brand through franchising. So, you know, selling franchises, uh, working with franchise partners to develop the concept. So it's a fun, exciting brand. Um, it opens 7 a.m. to 3 p.m. So it's a relatively easy hours and some exciting, delicious food. A lot of fun things about the brand that I gravitated to as soon as I saw it. So currently in the president role there and continuing to chip away and putting all the hard work in to lay the foundation for growth. So it's a little bit of a summary. Yeah, that's cool. Some, some fun experiences. Tell me more about the fan environment in college soccer. You said the town was kind of behind the team or definitely the college was behind the team. Are there any things that you can remember where the fans were rallying behind you guys or did you have any, when you won some of the championships that you won, did you have like a parade when you guys came back or anything like that? Yeah, no, for sure. It's, that was probably one of the coolest things about being in Durango. I mean, I, Durango, if it, it's very small, it's very dependent on the college. The college isn't huge. It's about four to 5,000 students on campus, but when I say soccer was the sport, you know, with all the youth there, there's a lot of young families, kids between kindergarten and middle school. So all of their soccer programs and them being exposed to soccer, good soccer from a young age, they ended up going out and playing soccer. And then we would always get involved in the communities. We'd go out as a team or, or individually and help out, do sessions, get ourselves out there. And what that did is that created some sort of a relationship, a personality. We weren't just the soccer team. We were Barrick, you know, a soccer player. And then they all wanted to come out and see us. So, I mean, 
our average home attendance was, I think it was, I don't know the exact number, but definitely highest in D2 for sure. And probably rivaled a lot of D1 colleges, probably in the, the, the few thousand up to 5,000 for a regular season game to come out and watch us play. So really cool environment. The, uh, the culture around the program, um, everybody in the town understood um, the level of work we were putting in and, the, and they appreciated that. And they liked to see local teams win, right? And we put Durango on the map. Yeah. So when we went out and won a national championship, we're in Florida, right? We're getting national attention and, and that turns eyeballs to Fort Lewis, which probably drives some kids to look at Durango as an option. So yeah, it was a really, a really cool experience. There's a little bit of that, you know, when you're walking down the streets and people you've never met before, like, oh, hey, I saw you play, you know, last weekend, which those kind of experiences, you just, it's hard to really replicate and honestly explain um, without actually, you know, being a part of it. But yeah, something I'll cherish for the rest of my life, for sure, that time there. Yeah, I raced skiing in college. I went to a division one school. So there was in skiing, the big schools are like uh, Denver, University of Utah on the West Coast, and then on the mm-hmm. East Coast, University of Vermont, Dartmouth, Middlebury. Yeah. There was a few races, Middlebury in particular, really small town, but they care about two things, hockey and skiing. And when they had the Middlebury Carnival, they would just line the sides of the slalom course in particular, top to bottom. So when you would come out of the gate, there would be local fans that, you know, we didn't even know these people. And that was pretty rare for a ski race, especially in the U S in Europe, that's very common, but the fans would walk up the hill all the way to the top and just line the entire course with cowbells and things like that. It was a really cool experience. And I wasn't at Middlebury. I was in Maine at a school called Bates. But I had a few friends that were at Middlebury and they said it was such a empowering experience and a fun experience to have that kind of local community support the athletes. Definitely. Once you're a part of it, I mean, it kind of gives you just a different mindset, right? I mean, when you're, even when you're training, you're practicing, you, you get exposed to something like that. It, it lights your fire for sure. So that we, um, yeah. we always loved playing home games. We had a huge advantage being at home because of it. Um, so, so yeah. And again, I mean, it just, it kind of just gives a little bit of that, you know, no matter win or lose, you're going to have that community to go back to. So, um, b- believe me, they didn't, they didn't want to see us lose, but, but, uh, yeah. but yeah, that was, uh, it was definitely fun. Cool. Well, let's talk a little bit, probably some of the you know, grit that you developed throughout your sports time frame will come in handy in the world we live in today, uh, obviously the coronavirus creating this entirely new way that we live and impacting businesses and employees in particular. I saw a number today around 6.6 million employment mm-hmm. claims, just staggering numbers of both health and financial crisis that we're facing. And being in the food business, you have both opportunities and challenges. What is this time like for you and just how are you doing in general? It's uh, it's tough. I mean, I think if anybody in the restaurant business is saying that uh, there's more opportunities than challenges, I think that they would be lying. But at the end of the day, all we're trying to do right now is support our community and specifically our team, um, our employees. So we're doing everything we can to ensure that they you know, are, are employed, 
are able to take, to take home a paycheck and keep them safe. So that's the other major thing is um, it's not just about the numbers. You're trying to ensure that the environment that you're calling people in to work at is safe and you've taken the necessary precautions. And so for us, I think it's been a little bit of chasing the right information. There's been so much data dump over the last two weeks in terms of what the requirements are versus what the recommendations are versus should people be wearing masks, should they not, that kind of a thing where just talking about the safety piece, really trying to understand where to get the right information quickly and effectively uh, was, was probably one of our biggest challenges. From a business standpoint, uh, small business is going to be impacted not just for the next couple of months, but I mean, definitely through the end of the year, if not longer. Like I said, we're a fast, casual, quick service restaurant. So we are used to doing off-premise dining, um, to-go orders, delivery, that kind of the thing. But for the small business, the independent restaurant that is full service and maybe not used to it, I mean, this is going to be a really hard thing to overcome, even with community support and people cheering you on and trying to, uh, to keep you afloat. The stimulus that they passed, I mean, it'll help to some degree, but for the restaurants that have already closed, it's going to be difficult to bounce back. Like I said, I mean, I think at the end of the day, we just want to make sure that people are safe. Our customers, our employees, we're private equity owned, right? So we do have, you know, shareholders, uh, a lot of shareholders that we have to also make sure that um, we're running things economically and keeping their interests in mind too. So there's that balancing act that I think has been difficult for me in my role to make sure that all those things get accomplished. Um, and, oh yeah, I serve really great food. <laughs> so um, yeah. yeah, your supply chain is probably causing some issues as well. Yeah, luckily, Arizona, we haven't had too many issues. Um, there's been certain things. You place your order, the truck shows up, and you know they say they didn't have a couple things and you know, things that you know, kind of make sense. So, you know, overall, Arizona hasn't been, the supply chain hasn't been um, tightened up too much. Um, certain things like, for example, eggs have like doubled in price, um, even commercially. So the wholesale pricing that we get is double. Um, but, uh, but yeah, like I said, I mean, restaurants, restaurants on a good day are difficult <laughs> to add in this kind of a variable and to try to move things on the fly, keep people motivated. It's tough. It's, it's definitely tough. It's probably definitely the hardest thing I've ever had to deal with since coming out of college. So, yeah. Wow. On the financial side of things, you have three locations right now. Is that right? Uh, we have two locations. Yeah. We actually ended up closing uh, one of our locations in downtown Phoenix uh, last year. And so of the two, one of them is uh, not, or it's, it had to be closed completely. Is that right? That was a sit down version. And the other one has the walk up or takeout. Correct. Yeah. So one of the locations, the one that we ended up closing um, temporarily is really set up to, to only, I shouldn't say only do dine in, but it's really set up for dine in customers. So everything yeah. about it just, just it doesn't really yield to doing takeout delivery. Um, so we still, you know, we still did it and offered it when we were open, but even the area, the community there doesn't do a whole lot of uh, third party ordering through like Uber Eats and Grubhub. So even despite our best efforts hitting the streets and then, you know, doing some cold calling, even trying to do some community outreach just to drop off even free food at some of the hospitals, it just became evident that it wasn't going to, uh, it wasn't going to work at that location. So 
the location that we have open now is much different. Um, there's a lot of foot traffic, not anymore. It's kind of that vibe, um, that area. It's used to seeing people bustling about. So it's a younger demographic as well. Um, people that tend to eat out more often or order in more often. That was a difficult decision. You know, I think um, you're talking about not just closing a restaurant, but having to try to to manage, you know, moving employees to the other location or in some cases having to make the tough decision to furlough them. Yeah. There's a lot, obviously, that you had to learn and figure out what your plan and strategy was quickly. You know, we're talking within a few weeks here of your mm-hmm. whole world changing and kind of how you operate and how you communicate with employees and, and big changes would affect probably many of them. Did you have the chance to do any kind of all team communication or how did you, once you kind of got what you were going to do, how did you communicate to keep the team motivated and keep it clear and keep trained? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. So we, we've tried to do as much as we can face to face. That obviously doesn't happen um, all the time. And with people obviously not all being on shift at the same time. So there's been certain times where we've had to just uh, set up a group call specifically, let's say with the management team, for example, we've tried to touch base at least every few days to provide updates. One of the things I've tried to do too is provide them clear, clean information about the steps that they can look out for um, not as employees, but just as people. So keeping them informed on things like the family's first coronavirus act, which provided additional sick time for employees in certain situations, providing them updates. And again, clear bullet point information on the stimulus package that was passed um, related to, you know, the, the checks that will help people pay for groceries and things like that. You know, a lot of our employees, they're hourly. Um, so some of them are, are minimum wage, some a little bit higher. Um, but this is a difficult time for a lot of people in the restaurant business. And so, that kind of information, I think, helps them make decisions for their family and just being there for them and, and trying to communicate and, and have clear conversations and understanding people's situations. So, like I said, we've been trying to do as, many, as much of it as we can face-to-face, but we've decided in some cases it's better just to jump on the phone. For some of the things that we've had to do on the fly, it's been a lot of digital communication sending out, let's just say, for example, we launched a brunch from home, BFH, brunch from home package that was delivered, right? So you can, it's basically meant for a family of four. Instead of coming into the restaurant and spending brunch with us, um, we can deliver it to them. Everything from eggs, pancakes, French toast. They basically kind of create and curate their own type of brunch. And so we put together that package in 24 hours. There was, there was R and D, there was marketing, there were photos, all that stuff happened in 24 hours. And so you also have to train. And I think a lot of it, we were lucky because we've actually done a lot of that kind of communication already. So we used Slack for, for our GM and manager communication. So we're able to share files and share what we call build cards, which basically outline mm-hmm. how things are supposed to be prepared it was nice to see that we had already kind of done some of the stuff that makes it easy where some companies have had to kind of totally change how they're doing business communication wise. We've really leveraged some of the things that we've already been doing training on the fly, really leveraging our our managers and making sure that 
we have clear communication to them and then they can disseminate the information to the rest of the team. And then it's obviously accountability and follow-up to make sure that things are being done. But typically for us, like for example, a rollout of a new product or a new menu item starting with R and D is probably two months. So to do it in 24 hours is insane in a lot of different scenarios. I think our customers appreciate it, right? We have just about every other customer that they're picking up more if they're ordering delivery, they leave a note like, you know, we love what you guys are doing. We appreciate you guys staying open. We appreciate you guys offering different stuff to accommodate. So those kind of things keep our team motivated to uh, understand, you know, why we're, we're implementing new things. Cause if anyone's worked in the restaurant business, you know, it's those new things that really cause issues and cause problems. Um, and so when, when yeah. a team member sees something new come down the pipeline, it's always difficult to motivate them to want to get trained and up to speed. But seeing our customers' reactions, I think, helps the cause um, for us, for sure. Yeah, because consistency is obviously a key part of the process in the restaurant business. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that, first of all, I just want to say as being a business owner and an entrepreneur and a competitor, you've got a very, very tough task. And I'm sure it's difficult, but from everything you've just described, it sounds like you're doing a great job and we wish you the best, of course, in getting through this whole process. So um, good luck with that. Um, As an athlete, hopefully you've done some visualization in the past. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it'd be helpful if we just sort of take ourselves out of this Corona world that we're in today and (laughs) the rest of the conversation, try to think about things in the normal world. Because I think there's a lot of great stuff there, too, that our listeners can really learn from. And one of them, you just mentioned a fantastic example of creativity. You've been in some interesting business environments, and your restaurant concept in particular has some creative components to it. And I was curious if that comes a lot from you. Are you a really creative person, or have you surrounded yourself with the right people to help deliver creative executions in your restaurant business? I would be the first person to say that I'm not necessarily the most creative person. I think that my exposure to different situations and scenarios and different things in general. So being, being in Tokyo, for example, and when I was there traveled around, we we did um, Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, you know, a bunch of different countries. And I've had really privileged opportunity to be able to see different cultures and things like that. So I think, I've been exposed to certain things that probably assist us in that process. But when it comes to sitting down, coming up with ideas, we really leverage our entire team. Everybody brings something to the table. It's one of our core values actually is, is really coming together and uh, empowering, let's just say, for example, even our back of the house um, to, you know, create and, and come up with new things for example, just bringing up one specific menu item, you know, last year um, we had an employee come up to us and say that uh, he wanted to try breakfast tacos. Uh, we're down here in Arizona. We have a big Southwest flair. Um, we said, yeah, let's, let's try it out. And his first, his first go at it, um, his name's Eddie. His first go at it was phenomenal. I think we only changed like two things before we put it on the menu. And um it's called Eddie's Breakfast Tacos. So his name's on the menu now. Those kind of situations, I think that and making sure that there's a checks and balances, but I, I am definitely not the one coming up with everything. And I think that we all use our prior experiences to 
at least fine tune things or contribute, but it's definitely a team effort. And I think the team being involved in stuff like that gives them a little bit of ownership as well and just increases that team feeling. That's an interesting combination. I would say as a leader of the organization, you're not necessarily identifying with creativity, but definitely a, uh, a sense of adventure or willingness to be in environments that aren't totally clear. Yeah. You, de- you definitely, we get that when you go to Japan. Um, and then the creative creativity that's generated by a team, they feel and remember that so much more. And mm-hmm. one of the themes that I've heard from a lot of people, they use creativity in the sense that we're talking about now, creating new products and coming up with new concepts and communicating them to customers. But they also use creativity in things like uh, communication and team experiences and the kind of the actualization of the company culture uh, gets manifested as creative experiences. And then the team members internalize those things more. Mm -hmm. And that helps, you know, translate to the, the overall experience that you're trying to create and get your mission and your vision and your culture communicated to your employees and end customers in a much better way. Those kind of creative processes as well. It gives people that open-mindedness also that is crucial um, for, for a business like ours Um, and to be able to look at things a different way, look at things from a different perspective, hear people's perspective, other people's opinions knowing that we're all in this for the same goal. You know, it's not one person trying to drive the ship and pull everybody in the same direction. It's, it's all of us marching forward and contributing to the process. So I've been involved in certain conversations and other organizations that there's always that squeaky wheel gets the, gets the grease kind of a thing. There's the person who's loudest and, and maybe not necessarily most fit to, to solve a problem that is doing it because they have voiced it in a certain way. I think that we've tried to create a culture where just because somebody's offering an opinion that's different than yours doesn't mean that they don't like your opinion. Doesn't, doesn't mean they don't like you. It's that we're all trying to try to find the perfect solution to this problem. Um, because we all want to be yeah. the best breakfast restaurant in Arizona. That's kind of what we're all driving towards. So, and like you said, I think it gives people ownership and that feeling of pride in the process as well. Well, it sounds very similar to sports, right? The team has to operate in a similar way. There has to be unique personalities, unique perspectives, obviously in soccer, skill positions that have both skill components to them, but also there's just a cultural difference between a forward, a midfielder, and a mm-hmm. defender and a goal a goalie, for example. Yeah, maybe a little bit stereotypical, but the goalie personality is very different than the forward personality, for example. Mm-hmm. And as the coach, you kinda you need to operate within both of those worlds and get the team to really work together. Are there any experiences that you had on the team that you feel like have put you in a position to succeed in the business world? I mean, I think being in the restaurant business, you brought up consistency earlier. Um, you know, consistency for us in any restaurant is is really what separates good restaurants from great restaurants. You know, being able to execute 
every single time the right way. Nowadays with the keyboard warriors out there, uh, the Yelpers, the, the online review culture, and the inclination to not say something in the restaurant, but wait till you get home and then, you know, provide no opportunity for the restaurant or any business to you know, solve the problem. You have to be consistent. One customer with a bad experience, a bad review can cost thousands of dollars in, in lost revenue um, over the, the following three, four weeks. They've done studies on it. And so yeah. taking it back to sports, it's, uh, you know, for us, we lost, I think we lost like, I can't remember the exact number, but around five games, five or six games, my entire career, my entire four years there. And we were expected, we had the target on our back every single game, right? You know, we're the golden state, you know, we're the, uh, the Patriots, everybody wanted to beat us. And so we had to be consistent every single game. And how do you get to consistency? It was really, it wasn't in the game, right? It's, it's in the training. Um, so I always go back to training, training for us in practice in sports is really where you separate yourselves as a business, as a team, the work you put in, and it's not practice until you get it right. It's practice until you can't get it wrong. And I think we've all been there. Any, anytime that you've been in a team sport or a solo sport, your coach saying, Hey, we're going to do this drill for the thousandth time this week. And everybody's rolling their eyes and they're like, oh, this is, this is, uh, this sucks and all this stuff. And then you get into the game and you realize like mentally you cannot get it wrong. Um, and so that's where for us, we overtrain in our restaurants. Uh, we overprepare. Um, we make sure that somebody coming on gets their full training. They don't start a shift by themselves until they have passed their training course. Um, and so compared to some of the other organizations I've been in, and we're a small restaurant concept, we're only two restaurants. We train, you know, let's say our dishwasher, our busser, um, twice as long as the other organizations I worked for do. And it's because we want that habit driven mindset. It makes everything else easier. Right. Um, so, you know, going back to sports, if you know exactly what your role is and what you're supposed to do, and you've done it a thousand times in practice, it's really at the end of the day, hard to mess up. And even when there's other variables, another team, a customer in the restaurant, whatever it is, it's difficult to mess up at that point. And so creating those training programs and really putting the, the time and energy behind it um, before they go into their shift or the, before they start a game, that, that's a huge one for me that I've taken from Fort Lewis because we had some really grueling practices, some really grueling preseasons, and the whole time you're just visualized, it's going to result in something, a, a win, a couple wins, a national championship, it all stacks up to each other. So that's definitely the number one thing that I've, I've tried to implement in my business career and, and leading Daily Jam. Well, it's something that is like baked into the routine and the expectation of being involved in a sports team. You practice. That's just the way that it is. In business, practice is almost like a a burden for a lot of organizations. People will put their training time as overhead cost. And then when the going gets tough, they've got to reduce that training time because they need to cut their costs. Mm -hmm. And it just it isn't a generally accepted area that people spend time and money on. You're thinking about this the right way, which is really cool. Yeah. I mean, from a training standpoint, I mean, it just makes everyone's life so much easier. I mean, for the cashier, let's say, who 
has a lot to deal with. You know, our cashiers have to answer the phone. They have to deal with customers, uh, a line of customers in front of them. They have to deal with the person wanting their specific dish a specific way and making sure they type it in correctly to make sure it gets to the kitchen. Um, so they have a lot of responsibility. And so really ingraining the process and the things that they need to look out for and the menu training, all that stuff, ingraining it into their training process, it just makes it so much easier, which again, goes back to the economics. You're going to have a lot less turnover at that position because you don't have the people that are frustrated over and over and over again, because they weren't trained well enough and um, end up taking off and leaving. Because if we're taking ourselves out of the coronavirus situation we're in, a few weeks ago, Arizona had like sub 2% unemployment. I mean, these people could have gone across the street and got a new, got a job that day. Um, that's, that's just where we were. You know, everybody was hiring, everybody was growing. You uh, know, a lot of restaurants that weren't giving their employees the right <clears throat> tools for success, they lost a lot of their best staff. We had almost zero turnover before uh, coronavirus this year. So I think that just goes back to it. And, you know, turnover is expensive for restaurants because you're talking about having yeah. to hire, having to train. And so, yeah, there's definitely an economic component to it as well. Yeah, that's cool. Can you think of any moments where kind of everything came together perfectly? So all the training, the menu, the creativity, the restaurant was just performing perfectly. Can you think of any moments like that or events or launches of new menu items or anything? Yeah. I mean, I can think of one specifically. So the restaurant that's, I will just use the example of the restaurant that's still operating, you know, down in Tempe, it's, it's on ASU's campus. Uh, there's a lot of brand new business complexes nearby high rise buildings that have set up shop to kind of pull from Arizona state university's, uh, graduating classes. Um, and then there's a, a massive park where they do tons of events. They do marathons, they do rallies, they do all sorts of fun stuff. So it's a really, it's a perfect location for a restaurant like ours. Um, one event that is consistently the busiest time of year for us is Ironman. So um, Ironman is the massive uh, like mega triathlon race. Arizona's uh, has gotten bigger and bigger every year. And it's the starting gate in the convention area is blocks away from our restaurant. So typically we'll do about, I don't know, if you averaged our weekly sales out for the whole year, it's just about double um, that week. That week, And it's really kind of crammed into four or five days leading up to the race. Um, because when these people start the race, they start at 6 a.m. Uh, if you don't know what an Ironman is, it's like a two mile swim, 140 mile bike, and then a marathon at the end of it. So it's like a 15 hour day for some of these fans. <laughs> and so they see these guys jump in the water and then they'll maybe wait and then see them get out at seven o'clock, seven thirty, And, and then they get on the bike and after the bike, they can't, uh, they can't see them for another six, seven hours. So a lot of them venture out to the restaurants. And, and so we get really, really busy and we wanted to make this the best Ironman this past year. It's in November every year. Uh, we wanted to make it the best Ironman event for us that we've ever had. And so what we did is we prepped the staff. We had two all staff meetings beforehand. Uh, we reworked some of the way that we were going to handle customers um, and then coming in the restaurant greeting them with a, an actual person uh, whose sole job that day was to greet customers, inform them of who we are, give them a menu, make a couple suggestions um, with the goal of, of 
table turns. For us, how do we maximize sales? We get customers in and out as quickly as possible. And so ways we can do that is make suggestions to the menu. After they do that, after they order, the next step is the ticket time in the kitchen. So we did a lot of prep work to make sure we could handle the volume. We split our kitchens up into two different sides. You know, won't get into too many of the details, but uh, we brought our ticket times down um, below 10 minutes when we were doing that kind of volume for that weekend. Everything, the stars aligned, the whole team was bought in. They knew what the goal was. They knew what to expect. Nobody was caught off guard. We were overstaffed in some areas um, just, just to make sure that we weren't uh, falling behind. And it ended up being by far our best Ironman that we've ever had. So that was a, a recent um, example of something like that where you know, everything just kind of came together perfectly. And, and it wasn't just a happenstance. It was the work that we put in beforehand. How would you compare, and do they even compare, all the work that you had to do to then see that moment actually come to fruition with your company and your team executing it uh, compare to winning the championship and you actually scored the, the winning goal in overtime for one of those championships. How would you compare those? Uh, very similarly. And I'll kind of give you a little bit of the backstory behind why, but um, yeah, so I scored the, the game winning goal in the national championship my senior year. So it was really the last time I was on an actual full-size soccer field. <laughs> was uh, was scoring that goal. It was a golden goal situation in overtime. But let me back up to my sophomore year where we won the national championship and we had probably the best talent-wise, the best soccer team I've ever been a part of was that year. The following year, my junior year, we had arguably the the same, maybe just slightly less talent, but, but honestly, we were the favorite. We should have won. Um, we should have won. Uh, or at least been to the final four that year. No questions asked on paper. We had the perfect team. It was, it was, everything was set up um, um, to, to, to really go out and, and, uh, and do it again. And we ended up not even making the tournament. And so when I get into this kind of like talent versus hard work, really, um, and leadership, um, I'm a big proponent. You don't need the best players to win a national championship. And so the next year I was a senior, we had, I think six or seven other seniors that year who had also obviously been a part of the national championship, um, in my sophomore year and were a part of the complete downfall in our opinion, not making the tournament for us was like, uh, we might as well, might as well have not even played. Um, it was that kind of a feeling after my junior year. And so that valley that we were in, we all came together and we said, look, we're going to go out and we're going to work our butt off. We had on paper a very average team my senior year. Uh, we should not have been as good as we were if, if you were to, to run the numbers and just say, hey, this is what the team looks like. Uh, we, we were not on paper as good as anybody else um, that was competing for the, the national championship but it was the leadership. It was the hard work. Uh, we all bought into the program as well. Um, there was uh, support from our seniors um, to the younger team because we had to really bring up a, a lot of freshmen and sophomores to, to compete with us. And so there was that kind of revitalization of the culture. Um, but again, it was really about the communication and the preparation and talking about what, what it was, what is our goal as a team? What are we trying to accomplish? And so kind of looking back at the Ironman example, um, although it's a very small, it's one weekend, 
you know, we spent a good month, month and a half preparing for that one weekend um, and it paid off. And so when we all came together in preseason, my senior year, knowing that we were going to have to be the workhorses um, to get this done, uh, we all put in the work. Uh, we were probably the fittest team um, in the country at that point, and it paid off. Uh, I think we only, you know, had <clears throat> seven or eight goals scored against us the entire 25-game season, and um, and yeah, ended up winning the national championship. Yeah. So um, that's cool. I didn't know what you were going to say, but I'm really glad to hear that how similar those experiences were. I would say the same thing from my athletic and business experience. There were certain moments where, you know, it really starts way before that because it takes a while to get the right people on the team and validate that they're the right people and have the confidence that you can execute at this unknown level uh, that you need to in order to take care of those premium moments. For example, at BrandLive, the um, video software company I started we kept just getting bigger and bigger clients. And eventually we got to the point where we were powering Cyber Monday live for Walmart, which was basically like QVC on Cyber Monday on Walmart's website. Yeah. They had media traffic. They had, we were expecting, you know, over a million simultaneous viewers. So not only was the client freaked out, so our whole customer success team was really having to make sure that all these different components of every single digital touch point was all dialed in the media and the content, the production team had to make sure that the stream was going to stay up and the technology mm-hmm. team had to make sure that all the software was going to operate with that level of scale and that level of people um, hammering on the thing. And it, it, the nature of live video in particular is sort of like it's an event. So everybody does all this work. It takes us you know, a year plus to really make sure that we have the right people on the team to be prepared for moments like this and we get the job. And then, uh, and we did it, we pulled it off and it was over, over a million simultaneous viewers and very large event and really helping Walmart get more into the video business was an experience then that everybody was able to rally around and build upon to even cooler stuff after that. Yeah, no, that's, that's a cool story. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, those kind of things like in business, it's, Look, with sports, there's obviously an inherent goal. It's always, hey, let's win the, let's win the championship. Let's go to the playoffs. And there's like a certain thing, and it's always seasonal. It's tied to a season. I think the, the main difference with business is it's obviously there's a lot more on the fly. I mean, look at the, the situation we're in now. You're not to dive back into the, the, the coronavirus stuff. But if you don't have a strong culture to begin with, when you get into those situations where you have to build the parachute on the way down, um, it becomes very difficult. I think you have to, with business, you have to hit the gas um, at certain times and, and, you know, come together as a team to make those mini goals happen. Um, you know, with your example um, being yeah. paramount, but. Did you learn anything from your experience in Japan? Was there anything in the, the way that they do business in Japan that you have taken to, whether it, it aligns with what we've just been talking about? Yeah, I mean, I learned a ton from Japan. <clears throat> it's a totally different market. It's a totally different culture. Uh, when I went over there, you know, I was I was young. Um, I wouldn't say I was open-minded. I mean, it sounds crazy saying I'm, I wasn't open-minded going to Japan, <laughs> but I, I, was, I wasn't as open-minded as I was when I left. 
meaning, you know, they have a lot of very quirky business business protocols, processes, you know, just the, the very rudimentary one is the business card thing. When you meet somebody, right, you don't, you don't shake their hand, you, you present your business card. It's very formal. There's a bow, the, the way you speak and you, the way you introduce yourself is very cookie cutter. So there's really no, you know, there's no personality behind it. Like little things like that, that I think um, being exposed to it and seeing just how different it actually was, I think just created a little bit of an open-mindedness to me where now I can kind of look at things from a different perspective much easier and understand that everybody views things differently. When I first got there, um, every day it seemed like I was like, why the hell is everybody <laughs> waiting in line perfectly in a lot, like in a lot. So the subway station, the trains, um, I had to go through two of the main, the, the busiest train stations in the world. Uh, one had 3 million visitors a day. The other one had 5 million visitors a day. And these trains are packed, right? And you've seen the YouTube videos every once in a while where the guys in white gloves are pushing people in. But and for the most part, it's everybody's stacked in a, in a perfect snake, right? Right by the doors. Everybody's waiting yeah. patiently in line. And I just looked at it my first couple of days and I was like, this would never happen, you know, where I'm from. And I just didn't get it. But after being there for, you know, six months, I understood the culture and there's a, there's a, a respectfulness about the people in Japan that um, now it makes total sense that I couldn't imagine them doing it any different. And so I think just the open-mindedness to really see things from a different perspective and, and understand when we're in negotiations, when we're talking to vendors, when we're, um, you know, dealing with crises like this. I think that, you know, everybody has their own situation that they're trying to work um, within and, and um, trying to, to effectively see it from their perspective is probably the biggest thing. I think that uh, open-mindedness, empathy is something that was, that was um, you know, definitely developed for me when I was there. Did you get the chance to interact with or see much in the way of sports when you were there? Yeah. So I went to a couple soccer games. Um, I went to a couple rugby matches, um, which rugby in Japan is, <clears throat> is actually a, a very big deal. Um, didn't know that before I, before I went, but, um, and then I had the, the, such a cool experience. Um, I went to, uh, I can't remember what it's called in Japanese, but I went to um, basically watch the sumo wrestlers at um, they call them sumo houses. Like they actually live together and they train together. Um, and all they do is train, eat, and then they sleep. Um, so we actually got to go and sit and watch these guys train your feet from these guys. I mean, you're sitting on the ground um, eating breakfast uh, and their breakfast is like a soup, basically chunko nabe is what they call it. Um, you sit there and you watch these guys and these 400, 500 pound guys clashing into each other, doing their kind of ritualized um, chants in the process. And then they come and sit down and eat breakfast with you. Um, so that was, that was probably one of the top five, the coolest experiences I had in Japan was seeing that, um, we actually didn't end up making it to a, a full on sumo match, which I was pretty bummed about, but, um, but seeing that was cool. You know, you know, you can't really see that anywhere else. And so um, yeah. that was, that was a lot of fun. Well, let's switch gears to one last topic about uh, economics and you brought in a PE firm to your, 
company that you're trying to build here, I assume, number one, that probably changes the expectations and level of growth that you need to create. Uh, but it probably changes a lot of things. Maybe give me a little bit of an overview of why you decided to go down the route of having investors and a private equity firm involved and how you think about that from a president and leadership perspective. What we really wanted to do is we wanted to bring in a partner that could obviously provide us with the capital that we thought was necessary to go out and grow. But we weren't just, and I know everybody says this, but we weren't just looking for money, right? Uh, we wanted to have somebody come to the table that could provide experience, could provide mentorship. The private equity firm is called Z Growth Partners. They have a ton of experience in the franchise space. They've done, most recently, their their biggest growth story was with Zippy Shell, uh, basically like a pods business, so uh, mobile storage and moving. They took hmm. Zippy Shell from actually started it in the U.S. Uh, and they brought it over from Australia. They started the first location in the U.S. They grew it up to a $350 million valuation and sold it to 1-800-PACRAP. And that's one of their, their major successes. But they've also been involved in you know, major franchise growth um, on the development side of things uh, with real estate franchises, with fitness concepts, fitness franchises, and a little bit of food. So like where, where I brought a lot of the food experience, they brought a ton of franchise development and growth experience. I've been a part of legacy concepts, legacy brands with 500, 600, 1,000 locations, in some cases, 500 to 1,000 franchisees, individual franchisees. And so collectively, I think we all are able to come to the table and say, look, we have this really cool concept. We know where we want to take it and how many locations we want, how do we get there without getting to the finish line and realizing we need to change things? So we're able to build the franchise system and the support system in a way um, almost backwards from the end to the beginning because we've all been there. So at the end of the day, the reason that we went with them is is we we really did need capital. Uh, We needed capital to be able to set up some of these systems and to be able to invest in our infrastructure. And when I say infrastructure, it's mainly technology, you know, building online ordering, loyalty programs, things like that, um, and people. So investing in the right people to be able to have uh, a strong enough team to where when we do have those first few franchise locations open, we're able to over support them, not under support them. So that was the main reason behind going out and looking for private investment. So yeah, I mean it's it's been different for sure. I mean anybody that says they you know that that things remain the same, again I think would would be hard pressed. But they are um, smart. They understand um, obviously uh, the time we're in right now um, that uh, it's a it's a valley that we'll ride out. But um, but overall, like I said, they bring a lot of experience that I think is invaluable um, when we're all talking about where we want to take Daily Jam. Yeah, I think the, your comment about wanting to make sure you got more than just money, you wanted smart money. There's a reason everybody says it, obviously. It's super important. It also means more than just, I want to get smart people that can give me some advice and be involved in my business, but people that understand your business. When you run into a situation where they don't fully understand the situation, it can get really problematic you end up having to explain the, the why behind 
all of the signals that the business is telling you more often than if they really just inherently understand what's going on in the business and what to expect and what hurdles they're going to need to be overcoming. So it sounds like you've got a great partner. Uh, Congrats on that. Thanks. And I think it also helps too. They're, they're small, right? So it's not like, you know, I say private equity, you know, they, they're, they're a small fund. Um, They have a few other concepts in the fund. So we're not dealing with a private equity firm that has, you know, 50 outstanding investments um, where it's, it's hard to really get them fully up to speed. I think that's a great point you brought up about really understanding the business. And I'm sure you guys went through the same thing uh, with brand live, but, but really they're all used to looking at numbers, right? But there's way more, especially in restaurants, there's way more that goes into each individual line item than just the number you look at it and, and you pull one lever and four other things happen, teaching them what those, what those consequences are for, making any business changes, making sure that they're open-minded, again, going back to that open-minded piece, open-minded to listening and then learning about the business. That's, that's a huge thing um, for anybody that's looking to take on investment. Yeah. That was an area I wish I had done better. Actually, we got too focused on the numbers and we ended up with kind of a, an investor reporting or board reporting set of spreadsheets that were looking at the numbers seven ways to Sunday. And that ended up being the thing that was driving a lot of our decision-making because we were looking at it every month, not even quarterly reporting. It was monthly reporting. And so you just don't have the time basically for all of those other things that are happening as a result of pulling one lever and digging into those stories, so to speak, or the seeing the patterns inside of what else is happening in the business. I think there's a lot of value for unlocking growth and potential in that. So frankly, yeah, we, we are um, similarly in that, that same, uh, maybe not as extensive, but those monthly board calls where it's, Hey, let's, let's run through the whole thing. So we're still there, but you can, you could appreciate the kind of conversations and maybe the frequency of conversations in our current climate with a, a private equity firm. Um, it's becoming even more uh, important to, make sure that we have all the information and good information before making any business decisions in a, in a a situation like we're in today. That's the other piece, right? We talked about all the operational things with regards to our staff, our customers, our food, but now you've got that stakeholder piece and understanding, making sure they have the expectations for us, Arizona summers here are very brutal on businesses. Right. And so we're looking at this, possibly ending, you know, hopefully best case scenario, you know, I don't know, middle of May, end of May. Okay. Now we're into summer. <laughs> so yeah. to make sure that there's those, that clear communication and that recentering of focus, that's a whole separate variable that we're having to deal with uh, with our stakeholders. Yeah, it is a really tough dynamic. I could talk for hours about that. How do you bring information to those board calls so that you can make the right decisions and then understanding that, how those decisions are going to impact and cascade throughout the organization. Very obvious ones. Like you have to decide if you're going to lay people off or not. Mm -hmm. That has a huge cultural impact when you're deciding whether or not to do a layoff. The timing of it is so important because you can't just shut the spigot off in most businesses, maybe in some of your part-time employees, you can, but you don't want to. Mm -hmm. It's not the right humane thing to do, but for the economics of the business, 
each week, each month that goes by where you can't make that decision, the financial impact of that is it's not proportional. The sooner you do it, the better. And it just, yeah, I don't envy those decisions right now. No, no sure. it's not, not fun. That's for sure. Great. Well, this has been a really good conversation. We've obviously touched on so many different things. Is there anything else you would like to add? Uh, no, I don't think so. Yeah, it's been a, a fun conversation for sure. I appreciate it.